guys. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Great words. Well, happy Palm Sunday to you. It's good to be gathered here uh, together. Why don't we open our Bibles to Genesis 50, uh, verses 15 through 21. Genesis 50, verse 15 through 21. Before I have a stand and, and read that, many of you know that that my family spent about 10 years in campus ministry. Um, a portion of that was spent specifically in, in reaching African-American students for Christ at the University of Illinois. And as we were there at, in Champaign, uh, we did what really a, like a missionary to China would do. Um, our desire was to bring the gospel and put it in the context of the African-American community um, so that there were no cultural barriers between that student and the gospel, much like a missionary to China. They go to China in hopes of removing any cultural barriers from what they're bringing over to China and to bring the gospel strictly to the Chinese people. And so we just did that on a United States college campus. And I, I'm from Dunlap originally. Uh, my wife's from Bartonville. Uh, neither one a mecca of diversity and, and so it was a great uh, learning experience for Casey and I as we learned about the African-American culture and desired to bring the gospel to that culture. Um, an African-American leader once said that uh, most people of color, you, you can put in one of three colors, I think this is true, uh, one of three categories. This is true of, uh, of anybody of ethnicity, whether you have German descent, African descent, Australian descent, wherever you're from. And he said the simple acronym A, B, and C. He said the, the letter A student, that's the assimilated student. Uh, that, that, that was the student on our college campus that was of color, but uh, was able to fit into the assimilated uh, culture. The, let's just say it, right? The, the predominantly white culture that exists in our country. So that type of student, our predominantly white ministry was already reaching. And secondly, there was a B student. This was a, a bicultural student. This was the type of student that uh, felt comfortable in the mainstream culture, the primarily white culture, uh, but also felt comfortable in their own culture as well. And this was the type of student that our predominantly white meeting could probably reach for Christ. Uh, third, uh, this leader said that there's a, a C student. This was the contextualized student. This was the student that only felt comfortable in the context of their own culture. This was the type of student that our predominantly white meeting would have a hard time reaching. Because as they show up, there's immediately a lot of cultural barriers between them and the gospel. And so Casey and I set forth to try to reach that contextualized student, that C student, to try to reach them for Christ. And so I began attending uh, meetings on campus uh, where I was the only white person in the room. Uh, really doing a lot of things that a lot of people of ethnicity have to do every day, bringing the only person of their ethnicity in the room. And uh, I learned a lot. I began attending African-American churches where our family was the only white family in the, in the congregation that day. And we heard this slogan that I think is probably pretty much a, a mainstream slogan as well. But it's this, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Typically done where the, the preacher would start off, the congregation would respond uh, in, that, in that fashion. Well, I'm, I'm sure of... of uh, uh, of this, as, as I hear the African American community be able to say, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, that is an incredible statement to hear, especially from the African American community. We're talking about 
a, a culture that was enslaved in our country. We're talking about a culture that was not allowed to use the same drinking fountain as white people. We're talking about a culture that was not allowed to go into the front doors of a restaurant, but had to go around back. And yet, the, the cry of the African American church is, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Well, also, I'm sure of this this morning. I'm sure uh, that I'm a mess, and you are too, so I'm sure we struggle with believing that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. We may say that and give an intellectual assent to that being true, but do we believe it deep down inside? Do we live this out in our thoughts and our words and our actions? Well, we really will know if we believe this when we get rattled. I've used this illustration before in a sermon. Uh, but what's going to happen when I shake this bottle? Why does water come out? Well, the obvious answer is, well, you, you just shook it, Ben. Of course, that's why water came out. But if I change the nature of my question, why did water come out of the bottle? Then the answer is different, right? It's because water is what was inside the bottle. You see, when we get rattled, what's inside of us comes out. What's inside of us comes out. So in times of blessing, we say... God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, don't we? So kids, you get that Accelerated Reader Award in your class, God is good all the time, right? Uh, you make that sports team, God is good all the time. That person you're wanting to go to the dance with you says, yes, God is good all the time. As you get older, uh, that trade school that you wanted in, they let you in. You get that college scholarship, or you ask someone to marry you, and they say, yes, your first grandchild is born. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But we get rattled. We get shaken. And do those same words come out of us? Instead of getting an award in school, we get laughed at in front of our whole class. That person that said they'd go to the dance doesn't show up. The trade school says no. The scholarship falls through. Your child, who looked perfect at birth, now has a disability you've been made aware of. That person that your son or daughter married now wants a divorce. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Often what is within us is a heart that wants to make our own way. And so that intellectual assent to that statement goes away and what's within us comes out. If someone wrongs us, we want revenge. If someone says something harsh to us, we want to say something harsh back. I think, bottom line, we are short-sighted. And how God uses suffering for our good and for his glory and that's the message, big idea I want to bring to us today. Is that according to the scriptures, we find that God uses suffering for our good and for his glory. Which is allow, allows us to lead the life he has planned for us. So, you have your Bibles open to Genesis 50. 
Let's stand, and I will read Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You can be seated. Can you join me in prayer as we pray for our message this morning? Heavenly Father, Help us this morning as we consider this topic of of your sovereignty and suffering and forgiveness and revenge. Lord, help us to have a soft heart to what you might have for us. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we are to understand that God uses all things for our good and his glory, we live life differently. Which leads us to our first point. In light of God's sovereignty, the believer surrenders to suffering. In light of God's sovereignty, the believer surrenders to suffering. Now what do I mean when I say surrenders? What I'm saying here is that the believer embraces suffering as a God-ordained part of life instead of desperately trying to find ways out of it. He embraces suffering as a God-ordained part of life. Now, as we enter into this passage, uh, Joseph and his brothers have just buried their father, Jacob. Now, what a family history uh, these folks have, right? Uh, I think to fully understand uh, the fear that the brothers are feeling here in Genesis 50, we need to go back to Genesis 37. Now, many of you are familiar with this story, maybe from the musical or um, kids, maybe the the animated film, I enjoyed both of those, maybe not most biblically accurate uh, renditions of this story. Um, Well, let's let's go back to Genesis 37. You don't need to turn there. I'll I'll just kind of catch us up here and where we are before we get to Genesis uh, 50. Uh, In Genesis 37, we find Joseph, uh, who is getting preferential treatment from his father, Jacob. And in, in Genesis 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, and he made him a robe. Of, of many colors. Joseph has some dreams. Do you remember this? And in these dreams, uh, there's these images that are bowing down before, before him, really. Uh, and I don't know if Joseph was just unaware or what, but he chose to share these dreams with his brothers, uh, not really, get, I guess, catching the implications of what that would mean as uh, their hatred began to grow for them. Well, eventually his brothers are out shepherding, and, and Jacob sends Joseph out in a verse... Uh, 12 and says, uh, I'll send you to them. Um, So Joseph came to them and they they stripped him of his robe. Uh, They put him in a pit 
and, and tore off that robe and dipped it in blood so they could tell their father later that an animal, a wild animal, had taken care of, of Joseph. Well, eventually, uh, and they don't know what to do with him in the pit. They, they, they send him off with some, some traders. They sell him off to some traders who take him off to Egypt. Um, Jacob's very distressed, of course, by the death of his son, that this supposed fierce animal had taken care of him. Well, Joseph is taken to Egypt. He's sent uh, to live. Uh, he's, he's bought by a, a ruler in Egypt, Potiphar, who uh, puts him to work in his house. And uh, he's very successful there. Does a great job serving there and risen to a place of proven, pro- prominence within Potiphar's house. Uh, eventually, Potiphar's wife kind of takes a liking to him. And long story short, he's set up as being someone who's asking her to commit adultery with him and put into prison. Well, as we head into Genesis 40, then, another series of dreams here, eventually Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's taken out of prison and put in a place of prominence then in, in Pharaoh's court and really rises to a powerful position. This famine spreads, and Joseph has prepared Egypt for this uh, by the God's help. And it says in Genesis 41, verse 56, So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let me skip to chapter 45. And long story short here, after testing his brothers, who had come down to receive food from Egypt, uh, his brothers didn't even recognize him at this point. Joseph reveals himself to them. Now remember, these brothers who had done incredibly heinous things to him. In fact, in Genesis 50, when they supposedly write this fabricated letter uh, from Jacob to Joseph, the words that they write in the letter for transgression and sin are some of the most evil words in the Hebrew language. They had done terrible things to their brother. And this is how Joseph responds in Genesis 45. Verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. Eventually, the family does come to Egypt, and they experience great prosperity. I think almost 17 years of wonderful prosperity, the family being back together again, which leads us to Genesis 50, where in Egypt, Jacob dies. Now, I think in this passage, in Genesis 50, we see clearly an error in the brothers' theology. Joseph's brothers didn't have a right understanding of God's sovereign control over their lives. Even after 17 years of prosperity in Egypt, 
they still struggled to believe that God could use suffering for their good and for his glory. If so, if they really understood this, they might have prayed a prayer like this. Our father has died. God, whatever your will for us now at the hands of Joseph, your will be done in our lives. But instead, you see a self-focus, don't you? You see a self-preservation of themselves, hoping to have an easy life with no suffering. So much so that they seemingly fabricated this letter. Most commentators would agree that this was not something that Jacob actually said, that they made up a letter and sent it off to Joseph, saying that jo- Jacob uh, told him that, that Joseph, uh, right, tell Joseph, I said, that he needs to forgive you. So out of fear, they, they send this letter. And before Joseph could even respond, they come before him themselves, the fell, feet, fell at his feet, begging for mercy. They didn't understand the theological lesson that Joseph had just told them in Genesis 45, right? I'll read it again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. They still didn't quite get it. Whether Joseph decided to seek vengeance or not, it would be for their good and for God's glory. Well, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Earlier in Genesis 42, uh, Jacob had the same struggle. Their very father had the same struggle. Uh, through the series of testings that Joseph had done with his brothers, they, he kept Simeon behind, sent his brothers off to go to, back to Jacob, thinking, you know, you guys are spies. You're spies. Uh, uh, I'm going to keep Simeon here. You go back, bring Benjamin back to me, and then I'll know that you're not spies. Well, they arrive uh, to Jacob and say, Dad, the ruler there, he's got Simeon. We have to bring Benjamin back with us in order to prove that we're not spies. Well, here is how Jacob responds. In the ESV, the translation I read from this morning, uh, Jacob's response is this. All this has come against me. The NIV translates it this way. Everything is against me. I particularly enjoy the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation. It says this, everything happens to me. You see, Jacob's water bottle was getting rattled. And we see what came out. Self-pity, short-sightedness, everything happens to me. He had desire for life to be easy, not a surrender to God's work in his life. Well, this last Thursday was my day off, and I had two choices to make. Work on my taxes or put up the trampoline. You can guess which one my kids wanted me to do. So there I was with 90 springs around this frame and my three older kids helping me. Now, one thing we've learned, we've put up a trampoline and taken down a trampoline often enough. One thing we've learned, if you're just one spring off as you're going around the circle, once you get to 89 springs, you eventually discover that, and you might need to remove all 89 springs to get it right. And so I had this sermon in my mind. I'm a very spiritual dad, right? And so I said, kids, if I get to the 89th spring and I realize we're one off, I'm going to thank God for this opportunity for my sanctification. My oldest son says, I don't think that's how you're going to respond. I guess he'd seen my bottle rattled before, right? Then my second son, with a smile on his face, uh, says, 
Lord, please do not allow this opportunity for my dad's sanctification. <laughs> I don't know if that was another, uh, I'm not sure I was going to respond, or if he just wanted to be done so he could jump on the trampoline. Um, but either way, um, I think they were seeing that sometimes I don't embrace suffering. I don't embrace this principle that I should surrender to suffering in my life. Now, some men who did understand the role of suffering, from Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it came up in our Sunday school class again today, uh, from Daniel 3, 16 and 18, these three men answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if we're going to be thrown into this blazing hot furnace and thrown to our death, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from that burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, a surrender to suffering, saying, God, whatever you desire to see happen here, we will go through it. We embrace that suffering is a God-ordained part of our lives. Well, I am training for a marathon right now. Um, I, I really don't know why. Um, it's a horrible, horrible thing to train for a marathon. Uh, I was sitting on my, kit, on my uh, living room floor uh, stretching, uh, trying to think through how I was going to endure the suffering of a 16-mile run that I had to do that day. And I said a phrase out loud with my family present. I said, this is going to be hard. And my seven-year-old daughter says, Dad, hard is not bad. Hard is just hard. A phrase that we had tried to teach to our kids over and over again. And now the position of teacher was changed. <laughs> she was teaching me, hard is not bad. Hard is just hard. But we try to stiff arm things that are hard, don't we? God, this can't be your plan for me. I can't endure suffering God, this is not for me. Well, as we look back at Genesis 50, you might say, well, Ben, it's easy for Joseph here. He went through the suffering of being split apart from his family, thrown in a pit, betrayed by his brothers, sent down to Egypt, thrown in prison again. He went through all these hardships, but he got to see the fruit. Joseph got to see the savings of thousands of people from starving to death. He got to see 17 years of prosperity with his family. I don't see that good in my situation. I'm not seeing any visible fruit from my suffering. Well, let me ask you this. What is your view of suffering? Is it something that's God-ordained for you to go through, or is it a nuisance that's just in the way of how your life is supposed to go? Here's what the Scripture says. Lamentations 3, 37-38. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, and let the Lord, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45.6 and 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these 
thing. Now it's been said that if you're a Christian, you have just either come out of a trial, are presently in a trial, or are being, are being prepared to go through a trial. Do you embrace trial? Job 23.10 says, Behold, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, not just the easy things, not just the hard things. All things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it continues in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's been said that the fact that God can bring good out of evil only underscores his power and the excellence of his directive will. So are you in a difficult struggle right now? Are you in the midst of great suffering and trial? Or are you just coming out of one? Maybe you see one coming on the horizon. Maybe you don't see the good that's going to come. But maybe the goal that is to come, the good that is to come, is your sanctification. Let me give you three questions to consider as you approach suffering. Number one, could God have stopped this? Could God have stopped this suffering in my life? Could he have ordained that this not happen? That's question number one. Could God have stopped this? Number two, did he? Did he stop it? Number three, if not, why not? God is up to something in your suffering. He is up to something in your suffering. And asking yourself these three questions, could God have stopped this? Did he? If not, why not? Can allow us to search our hearts and see what we believe about God and what we believe about his purposes for us. Because who is this God? He is a God, we've already looked at this, who is sovereign and appoints and uses calamity. But also, he's a God who is compassionate and does not delight in calamity. He appoints calamity for his glory and to see his sovereign plan unveiled. But God does not find pleasure in individual acts of calamity. We must see the fullness of his character here. Think of a father standing 10 yards away from his son, who is, and his son is standing three inches from the edge of a pond. The father has a, a decision to make here. He knows that if that sun goes one inch closer, his feet are going to be soaking wet. But he stands back and allows it to happen. His son steps in, his feet are, are sopping wet. The father rushes forward, grabs his son in his arms, and comforts him. 
Does the father delight in the fact that his son's feet are soaking wet? No, he does not delight in that. But does he delight in the bigger picture of the lesson the son has learned? Watch yourself when you're close to water. You could fall in. Drowning is an option when that occurs. Does he delight in the bigger picture of what's been taught to the son? Yes, he delights in it. Does he delight that his son is crying? No, but he delights in what the bigger picture of what has been revealed to the son. Does God delight in evil? Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. In wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away from his way and live? God takes great pleasure in his sovereign will being played out for his glory and for our good, but he takes no pleasure in evil itself, in these individual evil acts. Listen to the care and heart for his creation. These are unfathomable scripture. Isaiah 40.11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Zephaniah 3.17. When was the last time you read Zephaniah? Listen to this passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. We need need to understand the full resources of this loving and compassionate God that spoke the world into existence are available to us when we are under trial. We can grow through suffering. It is a gift. How can I say that? How can I say that suffering's a gift? Because God does. In Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. That for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him. But also suffer for his sake. Now I am sure. In a room this big. That there are people that are going under. Tremendous suffering right now. Or that have experienced. Unfathomable suffering. This is my encouragement to you. Hold on. God is at work. He is in the midst of this suffering. He is in the midst of this trial. Don't demand a why. Don't demand a why, God. But instead, wait on the Lord and say, God, what's next? What's next? I know you are in this. How are you going to use this for my good and my glory? I don't see it. I don't see it. But I trust you in light of your sovereignty that I can surrender to suffering. So not only does the believer surrender to suffering, but number two, in view of God's sovereignty, the believer seeks no vengeance. The believer seeks no vengeance. Going back to our text in Genesis 50, we see in verse 19, Joseph says to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. In 21, he says again, So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them 
and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph says, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? Joseph points his brothers away from him and points them towards the Lord. Don't look at me. Look to God. God is the only one who justly pursues vengeance, not me. We see that all over the Bible. In Psalm 94, 1 and 2. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Vengeance belongs to God. But Joseph will not seek vengeance on them. See, Joseph has an understanding of the sovereignty of God. And it helps him to not just put off vengeance, but you see what Joseph puts on? He doesn't just put off vengeance, but he puts on a deep care for these people that have done incredible wrongs to him. And he says, I'll provide for you and I'll provide for your little ones. He comforts them and speaks kindly to them. Remember, these are people in Genesis uh, 50 verse 17. They said, Jacob said to say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Those, again, are the most heinous, extreme Hebrew words, Hebrew words to use as it relates to what they did. Yet Joseph seeks no vengeance on them. Bob Deffenball writes this, Vengeance belongs to God, not man. Joseph would not consider usurping a prerogative which belonged only to God. Furthermore, while their attitudes and actions were evil, the result was intended by God for the good of all. How could Joseph be angry when good had come of their sin through God's providence? Instead, Joseph returns kindness for cruelty, the kindness Joseph has shown while his father was still alive would continue. Now, how do we respond when we're wronged? How do we respond when someone creates suffering and trial in our lives? Do we have the right understanding of the character and sovereignty of God to use the anger that we have within us to help solve the problem instead of directing the anger towards the person? We need to ask ourselves, what are things I need to put into my life to help remember that vengeance belongs to God. Because our flesh screams out when we're hurt. Our flesh screams out at the top of our lungs, you deserve better than this. Get back at them for what they did to you. Well, at the same time, the spirit within us screams just as loudly and with more authority, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Vengeance belongs to God. You're a follower of a man who allowed you to mock him, to torture him, to kill him, so that he could bless you. That's not who you are. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So lastly, not only are we to understand and surrender to suffering in our lives, not only are we to seek no vengeance, but thirdly, in view of God's sovereignty, the believer seeks to forgive. The believer seeks to forgive. We look back at verse 19. Do not fear, for I am the place of God. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Now, in, in back in verse 17, we see that it says, you know, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God your father. And, and you notice what Joseph doesn't say? Okay, I forgive you. You notice that's missing from the text? I think Joseph doesn't say I forgive you because he already has. I've already forgiven you. I've, I've been seeking to forgive you. I've already forgiven you. And he points him to the Lord. God is the only one that you should first and foremost seek forgiveness from. Forgiveness is more than just the feeling. Forgiveness is a command. We see that in Colossians 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. This is an active part of our will to say, I am going to forgive you. Jay Adams defines forgiveness as a lifting of the charge of guilt from another, a formal declaration of that fact and a promise made and kept never to remember the wrong against him in the future. Let me take this to your front door. Are there people in your life that you need to forgive? Are there people in your life that you're withholding forgiveness? Christ is our model here. Humanity's greatest need is forgiveness. We all need forgiveness because of our sin. We are all guilty before God, and we all need a Savior. And that offer is here for us today as we consider, do I want to receive that free gift of forgiveness of my, of, of my sins and trust in Christ alone for my salvation? The offer is here today for unbelievers, those who have not yet placed their faith in Christ alone. But as we work out our salvation, the offer is before us as believers. Do we really believe the gospel? Do we really believe the gospel is for every day for us to recognize our deep need for Christ, the far reaches of his grace to save us, and that I have no right to withhold sin from anyone because of the deep forgiveness that I've experienced in Christ? Well, let me remind us, our big idea for this morning, that God uses suffering for our good and for his glory, which allows us to lead the life he has planned for us. So as we respond well to suffering, we will experience the abundant life that God has promised us. That doesn't mean a life that's not full of hurt. It doesn't mean a life that's not full of pain. But it gives us purpose in the hurt. It gives us meaning in the pain. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Let's grow in that theology of God and grow in how we live out that theology so that when we're rattled, that precious truth that God is good all the time pours out of our hearts. We really have no hope of viewing life in this manner without a surrendered heart and a surrendered will to Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are people in the gravest of need. But for those of us who have placed our faith in you, we are a people that have the most incredible resource available to us to live out this call from the scripture to surrender to suffering to seek no vengeance and to seek forgiveness god thank you you made those resources available to us would you 
help us to live this out for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.